On this edition of FedGov Today with Francis Rose, measuring for success no matter what you're trying to achieve. And a secret cloud is coming for the State Department. It's Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. Welcome to FedGov Today with Francis Rose. The new FedGov Today TV season is underway this Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 and on the FedGov Today YouTube channel. Ann Duncan, the CIO at the Energy Department, explains how to execute on what she calls the ever-expanding agenda. You can find FedGov Today TV on demand on our YouTube channel and at fedgovtoday.com. The Air Force will apply data to determine readiness of pilots. It's one of a number of areas the Air Force will use data to measure its success. Colt Whittle is founder and CEO of Bravo 17 and former chief experience officer of the Air Force. He linked to an article on LinkedIn titled Readiness Redefined But Not Measured, where the author Matthew Ross writes about the pilot readiness data. Colt, thanks very much for joining me. What did you see in this piece that resonated with you? Is it something based on your experience in the Air Force or something else? Welcome. Yeah. Hey, and Francis, thank you for the opportunity. And um, I, uh, first of all, um, what what jumped out at me was just the focus on measuring readiness um, and uh, doing it in a way that is more kind of mission connected. And um, I'll be honest, I am not a pilot. I don't know the first thing about readiness of pilots, but uh, I, I, I definitely, I think it'd be great for you to talk with the author and, you know, it, I, the way that they're doing it makes sense. It looks like it's very connected to the mission and how um, pilots uh, feel they need to be trained to go and be ready. We will talk to him on a future episode of FedGov today, so listen for that. But as far as measuring for success, something you and I talked about when you were on the FedGov Today television show when you were still at the Air Force, is how you determine what you're doing is on the right track or needs to be uh, reordered in any area of expertise across the government. How do you do that in an example like where you were in information technology, in customer experience? It's one thing to take a survey in the CX realm and see what your people are telling you, but I imagine that's not the only measure that uh, one can find uh, value from. No, it's really not. I mean, the, the, so the absolute best way, and sometimes you can't do the best. Sometimes you do have to kind of compromise and do what you can, in all fairness. But the best way is to create metrics that are something that is directly connected to the mission or to the business value that you're trying to create. Um, and so let's just say that there's a something going on where there's a, a cycle time. Maybe it's something like migrating applications to the to the cloud, right? Let's say that the average cycle time is three months, and if we're going to get the kind of um, accelerated improvement in IT, we need to get that cycle time down to one month. Well, in that case, measure that, right? And there's there's a lot of there's a lot of other things that contribute to that, and that's not the only thing you should track, right? There's, there's other key metrics that are important in order to get down to one month that you're going to want to track, but you know, doing measuring something that is directly connected to the mission value, I think is important and it's easy to explain to leadership and it's easier to help get the funding and resources and things that you need. How important is that uh, the idea of making it easy to explain up the chain to manage uh, upward? Well, it's critical. 
Um, and uh, it, it, it is absolutely critical, but it's not the only critical thing. I would tell you that you have to balance that sometimes with industry standard metrics. And so, um, you know, and what I mean by that is picking metrics that are, you know, ideally directly connected to your mission, but also metrics that are industry standards so that you can benchmark externally and know how you're doing compared to organizations that do things really well. I understand the value of stretch goals, but maybe it's through misanalysis where you're not looking at what the actual mission outcome is the right way or something like that. Is that a risk? It is. Well, it, it is, it is a bit of a risk. It's, it's a manageable risk. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, I think a risk maybe, you know, let's just say it's, it's worth the risk, but um, I, I have encountered that. So um, there's a metric that I really like called system usability scale. Um, we're now uh, in, in my former organization, the air force, they're starting to make use of it um, in a, in a fairly innovative way. Um, it's uh, it's, they estimate it using two questions on a survey and um, they now have 40 plus applications that are tracked uh, for system usability scale. Nice thing about that is it measures both usability and, excuse me, um, utility. So the how well the system meets the requirement for the mission plus ease of use. Um, and system usability scale, because it is a standard can be measured, you know, you can go and look up applications and you can, you can literally grade yourself and your application versus you know, applications all over the internet. So that's fantastic, right? You can see where you stand and you can see where you stand relative to the other 40 applications in the Air Force that are scored using a system usability scale. So that's great. Now then, I did run into a case in another agency of the government where they set a contract target where in order to get an incentive on the contract, the system usability scale minimum had to be a 90. Well, a 90 is, is really high, okay? In fact, some of the leading e-commerce sites on the inter- internet where they spend hundreds of millions of dollars developing the experience don't score a 90. 90 is really high. Um, so that's just unreasonable, right? So you have to be careful. And I think I think when you're dealing with this kind of data, it's, it's absolutely the right strategy to do that. But it, it helps, frankly, to collect it collect it for a few months, maybe even a year, build up a baseline, understand how it varies by application, by location, over time, how things are trending, what happens when things change, and then start setting targets to improve based on what you're observing in the field. You kind of anticipated my next question, Colt, which is how much data must one have in order to be confident to set that baseline to know what improvement really looks like? It is a good question. I think it has less to do with, well, I guess what I would say is, you know, a a good data scientist or statistician can tell you what's statistically significant in your situation. However, um, if if you're getting, you know, system usability scale is done with a two-question survey, and if you're getting 40, 50, 100 responses, you know, per month or per quarter, that's pretty good. Um, you know, for a, call it a medium sized application in a large organization, um, you know, more is better. Um, but that amount of feedback will tend to give you a, a good response. Um, and then, and then you can set targets. Now, one, one thing they'll add to this, um, within the data in the air force, just in the 40 applications where we have a system usability, uh, scale metric, 
Um, the range is from around a 40, which is the low end. Excuse me, I think it's even in the 30s. And, um, you know, that would be a letter grade F by almost any definition. And then it goes all the way up to we have a couple that are in the 80s that are actually quite high, um, which is phenomenal. Um, and so the range is, is, is pretty wide. So if you're setting targets, then you would probably want to set improvement targets. Um, you see kind of where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. You know, set an overall target and then maybe set improvement targets that are application specific and monitor the trend. Does meeting the uh, statistical significance threshold eliminate or at least mitigate the risk of the data that the survey respondents give you uh, not being accurate? Not that somebody would intentionally mislead you, but I could see a situation where people would say, well, we don't want to completely dump on what the the team is doing, so we'll score it a little bit higher than it actually is. Does If you hit that threshold of this is statistically significant, is, is that risk, does that risk at least go away a little bit? It, so it, it does, and this gets, this is where you get into pretty wonky stuff, um, but there's all kinds of techniques to deal with that. Um, so once you have more data, some of that tends to diminish. Um, also, you, I think it's more important, frankly, to focus on the trend necessarily than the specific, you know, real real number. Um, but the uh, the other thing that I would say is there are techniques to throw out, you know, highs and lows and and other data and do some adjustments just to throw out some you know, cases where people tend to try and bias things. In other words, you know, somebody just gets mad and gives you a one star. Not that we use stars in this case, we don't, but you see what I'm saying. Yeah. So there's, there's, you know, generally accepted techniques for how to deal with some of those kind of survey issues. All right. Uh, scenario where, I don't know, two years into this, three years into this uh, process, and we have the baseline, we have uh, a, a number now uh, based on feedback and we're going to use that scenario that you outlined earlier where 90 is like really uh, a desirable, attainable goal. And that's the goal that we set. And we find out that we're tracking somewhere in the upper 60s or low 70s. Is it an art or a science to determine that's good enough or that's not good enough? We need to keep going and pour resources into keeping going or we've probably hit the ceiling as to what we can do in this circumstance. Um. Yeah, really good question. It, I think it's I think it's a little bit of both, um, and we we see this kind of thing. Um, so I would say in general, um, if you look at the legacy apps that I tend to see in the government, you, there there is almost always substantial improvement that you can make with things that usually don't even involve changing code. We're talking about labels and and content and copy changes and, and things that, you know, literally affect usability. Navigation structures sometimes. One of the worst examples of a user experience problem that I encountered in my in my work at the Air Force, um, it's well known. It got a lot of attention on the internet. It's been replaced now, but um, I'll, I'll name it. It's the fitness application that has since gone, replaced with something else. But that particular application, the main usability issue had to do with a completely insanely cumbersome kind of over-designed navigation structure. And uh, you can find examples of it out on various websites and LinkedIn and so on. Well, that was something that, you know, it was a basic information architecture problem. 
right? Could have been resolved years before it was. Um, so that's just a case where I think you can, that's an extreme example, but you can find those, um, those easier to solve things on almost all applications. And I wonder if maybe that's not the most important takeaway for this conversation with you, but also in the broader um, uh, success measurement discussion across government is that there's plenty of, it's a target rich environment for finding um, in some cases, pretty easy things to be able uh, to start to chip away at some of these challenges. Totally agree. And I, and I would also say that the, the, the inverse of that is also true. We do have some success stories. Um, and I'll just tell you one, um, which is uh, at the Air Force and it's Digital University. So it is one of the, in fact, right now, I think it is the top uh, uh, system usability score that they track. Um, and it's a newer application. The other two are actually older applications. Uh, they're just simple and they're reliable and they're easy to use. But this one um, is newer. And the basic idea of Digital U is that it is a sort of a front end to pull together um, sources of commercial, you know, software development and DevOps and DevSecOps type of training into a common, you know, framework and then give you career paths or training paths, learning paths, I think they call them, you know, for all of the key things that the Air Force cares about within the software, you know, and DevSecOps community. And, uh, but the thing that makes it different is that from the day they set it up, it was a very airman-centric kind of approach where they have a feedback link, they get feedback, they respond to feedback, they have a flexible contract vehicle so that they can adjust the scope of things they work on. They put a priority on things that will move their metrics up. They track the same metric I was talking about before, system usability scale. They track it on a quarterly basis. Um, and then they figure out how to drive the number higher. And they know that, you know, people like me in my former role were looking over their shoulder and watching that number carefully and wanted to see how they were going to improve it. So for all those reasons, they were very responsive to airman needs. Um, and hence, highest metric that, you know, of any application in the portfolio of 40. Is that uh, so, maybe that, another huge takeaway too, is that the people who are involved in the improvements, whatever those improvements are that you're measuring, know about the measurement and know that somebody is watching what the whatever the improvement is that's supposed to happen as a result of the measurement. Oh, absolutely. And, and frankly, it's also important that you know the leaders of these programs create a culture on the team where everybody knows, you know, look, this is a tool for us and we're going to use it and it's going to make us stand out. And that's working effectively in this case. Cold, it's great to catch up with you. Thanks very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Always enjoy it. You can find a link to the War on the Rocks piece in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. And the author, Matthew Ross, will join me on an upcoming episode of the FedGov Today podcast. I'm Francis Rose, the host of FedGov Today. Innovation in Government DOTUS is available on demand now. You'll see all new interviews with leaders from DIA, NGA, SOCOM, and a lot more. You can learn more about the show and see a full guest list and watch it at innovationingov.com. 
The State Department's moving its top-secret network to the cloud. That move is happening in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at State. Jimmy Hall Jr. is the Chief Information Officer for the Bureau. At DOTUS 2023, he tells me about the mission of the Bureau and how the cloud move will work. The Bureau of Intelligence and Research is a bureau in the State Department whose primary mission is to deliver and coordinate timely and objective intelligence so we can advance diplomacy, right? Our motto is intelligence, empowering diplomacy. We strive to live that every day. And so our Assistant Secretary, Brett Holmgren, pulled me to the side when I arrived in February and said, hey, I have some strategic goals I want you to get after, and I have some specific objectives that I want you to tackle so we can move forward. So specific goals, he created a document called the 2025 Strategic Plan. And in that strategic plan, there's two goals specifically land in my wheelhouse. That's strengthening cybersecurity and undertaking a digital transformation. And those fit well with expanding our TSSCI uh, fabric. And so he said, okay, Jimmy, specifically what I want you to do, I want you to expand our TSSCI connectivity to embassies, camps, station posts, posts, right? I want you to fortify our cybersecurity posture. You know, we were meeting the compliance levels, but taking it to another level, right? So we're not out, not, not out of compliance, but just take it to another level. I want you to take a look also at your user experience and how we deliver those service capabilities. And then lastly, he wanted me to move to a TS cloud uh, adoption. Right? And so all of those things make sense. They nest well with the strategic goals. And so I set out to move in that direction. And so we, we made great progress when it comes to a TS SCI expansion. Uh, we've uh, moved to about five or six camp stations and posts that we didn't have prior to my arrival. Uh, in addition to that, in addition to that, we now have a cloud experience in AWS, right? So AWS is part of C2E. So we have this migration to the TS cloud. We've expanded to a few camp states and posts that we didn't have for the TS connectivity. And also part of our TS SCI connectivity is not just the equipment, but it's also the platforms uh, that we deliver. So we have something we call Tempo 2.0. And we've uh, now moved to a digital dissemination platform, Tempo 2.0, so folks can see the intelligence products on JWix. They can see the intelligence products on Cypernet, and they can also see those products on OpenNet, right? And so that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. Obviously, it's credential-based, so the average person can't go log in and see those. But with the right credentials, you can go log in and see our credentials and see our products, right? And so that's a huge win for where we are. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for the progress that we made, and I'm excited about what we're doing for diplomacy. Strikes me that you bring to the table a real big benefit to the State Department, same way as Kelly Fletcher does, the CIO, in that you have a lot of OCONUS experience from your time at the Defense Department. Does that apply to the work that you're doing at State? Well, it absolutely applies. So uh, my 30 years in the Army, I was honored to serve both in the IT and intelligence fields. And so uh, I'm suited for this job. Uh, number one, uh, Kelly Fletcher and I previously served in DOD. And so we had a relationship there. We understand where we're going. We understand the goals and where we need to go from a department perspective. And so it's paid dividends. And then the contacts and the relationships that we have overseas has made this even a, a more a smoother process. You know? And also let me add the other CIOs that are here in DOTUS as well as lend, lends themselves to us being successful in what we want to do. Right? So everybody understands what we want to do and where we're going. Your presentation here is about partnerships. What are the most important partnerships, whether they're within the government, 
with other governmental organizations uh, from other countries. I imagine those are important at the State Department. Your industry collaboration uh, partnerships are probably very important. Where, what are some of the most important ones to you, Jimmy? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. And so I'm here at DOTUS to not only uh, collaborate with my CIO partners, but I'm also here to collaborate with industry. And so there is no one entity that can get it done alone. And so whether you're in the federal government or whether you're in industry, it takes a partnership. It absolutely does. And, and also this gives me an opportunity to take advantage of emerging technology, right? And so in some instances when I'm in Washington, D.C., I'm not able to get out and visit industry and understand those emerging technologies and what's out there and what industry is bringing to the table. And so it's important for me now, not just to link up with industry here, but once I get back to D.C., also, academia. We need to do a better job of linking up what we're doing with industry, linking what we're doing with academia. And at the end of the day, right, empowering that diplomacy uh, to advance peace, uh, work for a more prosperous uh, world, right, and a more peaceful and safer world. And that's what I love doing. And uh, again, I'm suited for this. And I'm happy to have those relationships that you talked about. Yeah. What in your experience makes for a good partnership, whether it's with your CIO colleagues and peers or whether it's industry government or whatever, what what does each side bring to the table in your view in a successful partnership like that? Sure. A successful partnership starts with communication, huh? first and foremost. You have to communicate. And, and secondly, a successful partnership requires ownership, right? Not just buy-in, but ownership, right? And when you're working with industry partners and they feel like I'm just as invested in the solution set as you are, then you tend to be more more successful, right? And so those two things are key to any type of partnership, regardless of if it's academia, uh, industry, or federal government partners, right? There's, we have to communicate and we have to have that ownership to uh, be successful. So that's what I see as two of the keys. One of the things that uh, Kelly talked about when she was on FedGov today was improving the user experience. What does that look like in the portfolio that you're working on, Jimmy? So it's, it's very foundational for me when it comes to user experience. Right? So, so deliver a product uh, that's reliable, that's there, that's all the time. So improve the user experience from that perspective. The also user experience for me is a, is a better help desk experience, right? And so I have a problem, I submit a ticket, uh, I want that problem solved in a timely manner. So that's important as well. So having a user experience from a service capability delivery perspective that is there, but also knowing that I can call someone and get the services that I need in, it, in the time that I need. And so those are the two important, most important things for me from a service delivery perspective. But then you also need a competent workforce, right? And sometimes that's it goes without saying, but you have to say it and you have to go out and you have to recruit those people that can respond to those service delivery requirements and respond to those help desk notifications in a timely manner and, and come to a resolution that, that doesn't prohibit the mission. You used a term recently I'd like to ask you about. You talked about in the context of uh, top secret information, compartmented information connectivity. What do you mean by compartmented? What does that look like? Uh, well, so those who have a need to know for the information, for particular information, has access to the information, not just because I have a connection in my embassy or my camp or my station or my post, but also I have a need for it. But it's also important to know that I have a need for it. I can deliver that compartment information and, it, and it's safeguarded. You know, data is a weapon in a lot of places and we talk in terms of how important data is. And so you have to compartmentalize, you have to safeguard it and you have to deliver it to those who need to know it. And then understand the difference between all the above. Mm -hmm. You talked about the workforce a moment ago. What does your workforce development plan strategy look like to get those people to be able to do the things that we've talked about in this conversation? Sure, sure. That, that's a great question. Right? The workforce is the center of what we do and all about our business. We couldn't get it done without the workforce. And so let me just, first of all, give a shout out to my team, 
kudos for their dedication and professionalism, what they're doing to advance diplomacy uh, from the State Department, particularly in the INR Bureau. Uh, just like most CIO teams, right, we're, we're out recruiting, we're hiring, and then we want to retain. We're taking advantage of those IT and those cyber incentives and those bonuses that are there. Uh, from where I sit, I want folks to enjoy those bonuses uh, for the rest of their lives if possible, right? And so that's important. Uh, I'm, I'm also taking a look at telework, right? And so a lot of times folks say, well, if you own JWix, there's no way that you should telework. And so I'm looking at it from a different perspective is that it's okay the situation to telework once or twice a week uh, without, um, you know, hurting the mission for sure, right? That's, that's number one. But number two, where can we take advantage of what industry and society writ large is doing, which is they're offering one or two days of telework. And so we're, we're doing the same thing. So I'm working really hard on retention. And at the end of the day, you know what? We, we've come out of COVID now. and We need to start sending folks back to school and, and getting those certifications because that's important to people. If, I, if they're allowed to get a certification, if they're allowed to hone their skills in, in IT and cyber, uh, we tend to retain them more often than not. And so that's why the workforce is important. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to give them a shout out. And hey, if you're looking for a job in the State Department, come work in intelligence and research. That's a highlight of my conversation with Jimmy Hall Jr. of the State Department. You can find a link to watch the entire interview in today's show notes at fedgovtoday.com. I know you're really busy. You might not catch all the podcasts and TV shows FedGov Today offers you. If you want to keep up with everything that we're releasing, you can follow us on LinkedIn to get the latest updates. You'll get the next FedGov Today podcast next Wednesday. Until then, thanks very much for listening.